Thursday, October 19th. Welcome on into Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And my name is Avi Wolfman Aaron. Coming up a little later yes. in the program, we talk about the future of brick and mortar stores and try to answer this question, Cherry. Did in-person shopping really lose its charm? Mm. I know you got a few thoughts on got that. Thoughts, thanks, thoughts on things. You got yeah. thoughts on things. So does Amanda <laughs> Mull, staff writer at The Atlantic, who covers consumer behavior and will be our guest for that segment. And let me tell you, comments are already flying in, Avi. Mm-hmm. Y'all get in line with your questions. Get in line for your comments. You can call us 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. And speaking of flying in, in just a short moment, the new CEO of Philadelphia International Airport, Atif Saeed, is here to talk about his vision for the airport as well as ideas for improving customer satisfaction. But first... Yeah, some news. And you heard in the national newscast Mm -hmm. all of the drama happening in Washington with the speaker vote. It looks like Jim Jordan, at least for now, will not be the speaker. And there is a local tie to that development. Earlier this morning, less than an hour ago, Pennsylvania Republican Brian Fitzpatrick, who represents Bucks County in our region, um, told the Inquirer that he would no longer support Jordan. He had supported Jordan through the first two rounds of voting and announced uh, earlier this morning that he was flipping to no and will be backing instead temporary speaker Patrick McHenry and supporting a plan to give him more interim powers. Um, so that's a big that's a big deal for a lot of reasons, one of which because uh, Brian Fitzpatrick is kind of seen as a bellwether moderate, both in our region and na- nationally. Um, and so him sort of uh, leaving the Jordan camp is a big deal and clearly was a big deal because that development happened um, with the House Speaker vote earlier just moments ago. Yeah, and this is yet another vote yeah. that Jordan has has been unable to secure the, the folks to, to win um, the speakership. So we'll see what happens. Hopefully, you know, they'll choose at least an interim speaker so the people's work can get done. Yeah, let's move it along now, Chair. Yeah, the Israel-Hamas um, war has taken an emotional toll on the nation and the world and also in our region. There have been uh, reports of an uptick in hate crimes nationwide related to the war. One is a six-year-old boy was killed and his mother was attacked in Illinois by their landlord. Investigators say they were targeted because they are Muslim. Police charged a 19-year-old with assault and harassment as a hate crime after he allegedly attacked a Columbia University student who was hanging hanging up posters on campus in support of Israel last week. And in our region, right here, Avi, someone broke the glass door of a South Philly family displaying a sign of Israel's flag and a Philly supports Israel sign. Here's that resident, Larry Levin, on choosing to keep the flag on display. I feel strongly that we shouldn't take it down, that you can't um, retreat from bullies and terrorists. Anti-Semitism can't stand. Also, there were numerous anti-Muslim incidents over the last week, and that's according to Dean uh, uh, Syed Ahmed of CARE, New Jersey, a nonprofit that promotes fair and accurate coverage of Islam and Muslims. Here's a comment from Dina. When you can only speak in support of Israel or risk losing your job, uh, risk being blacklisted in the legal field, risk being harassed and physically assaulted by your peers at school, um, that's what's happening right now on the ground. And obviously, the FBI has also reported an uptick of threats against Muslim and Jewish communities, although they haven't given specific numbers. But this is happening everywhere. Yeah. Uh, the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, has said there's been an uptick in incidents um, here 
locally and nationally. They also mentioned that they're on the lookout for misinformation about incidents like that. They're also worried that people mm. will uh, amplify fake videos, fake statements um, that could further inflame tensions. And that's just a sign of the times. Yeah. I just hope everybody takes a breath. There's a lot going on. Um, but, uh, you know, and to everyone who's been impacted, you know, prayers to you. Yeah. I want to mention a poll, a new poll out of uh, Fairleigh Dickinson University in mm. New Jersey that shows an overwhelming yeah. majority of New Jersey residents want Senator Bob Menendez to resign. As you have likely heard, Menendez yeah. is facing multiple federal indictments, bribery, conspiracy charges, acting as a foreign agent for a government, this, in this case, the government of Egypt. Seventy percent of respondents to this poll said that Menendez should step down before the end of his term. He said he's not going to do it, mm -hmm. although he has not said whether he is going to run again in 2024. And here's the really interesting part, Jerry, yeah. in this poll. 80% of Republicans said he should step down. That's not that surprising. 67% mm -hmm. of independents, 71% wow. of Democrats. Um, and so if you don't have support within your own party, uh, I don't know what the path forward really yeah. is. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he's facing multiple indictments, yeah. um, you know, and the charges have been expanded <laughs> at least once. And I mean, this is the second time he's faced indictments. There was one back in 2017. So um, folks may be ready to see new leadership there, but we'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, a new permanent exhibit, Avi, is at City Hall. And this one focuses on the move bombing in Philadelphia. Remembering move. That's what it's called, May 13th, 1985. It's now on display uh, in the lobby of the Municipal Services Building. The exhibit contains archival displays like pictures, video, and descriptions of MOVE, which was a black liberation group. Um, it talks about MOVE's early history, its confrontations with the city. Um, and, of course, that May 13th, 1985 date is the day that police dropped explosives on the roof of the MOVE headquarters in Cobbs Creek in West Philly. After an armed standoff, they killed 11 members of the group, including five children. That historic incident left about 250 people homeless. It took the city 35 years until 2020 to provide an official apology. And I should mention that no city officials face any criminal charges as a result of that incident. So this has been, you know, a sore spot for the city of Philadelphia. You and I as reporters mm -hmm. have covered some of the aftermath even in recent years yep. and it continues to go on and on. But this is an acknowledgement of what happened in 1985 on May 13th. I want to reiterate something you said, Sherry. It is being framed as a permanent exhibit yeah. inside City Hall. So you walk into City Hall, Philadelphia City Hall, and from now until forever, you will see acknowledgement of what happened. Uh, the move bombing has been, it was a historic landmark. It was a milestone, not for good reasons, but it is remembered all over the world and is certainly remembered here in Philadelphia. Uh, and I, as you noted, the exhibit, which we haven't had a chance to see yet, we've yeah. only been able to see pictures and read about it. It is not just about the bombing. It's about the years of conflict that led up to the bombing, mm -hmm. including a major incident in 1978, a, a shootout between members of, I mean, there's look, there's a lot of details that are so still contested, but, yeah. but we should say um, a police officer was killed in a confrontation with MOVE um, in 1978. And so it, it gets into all of that. But of course, the, the, the date of the bombing is the headline date of the exhibit. And um, that is the day that 
people in Philadelphia have never forgotten. Yeah, yeah. And and you should go check it out if you're at the MSB. Yep. MSB building, yeah. Um, a little uh, lighter news. Joel Embiid. Okay. <laughs> if you're like, <laughs> you don't know where I'm going with this. Joel Embiid <laughs> is the uh, reigning MVP of the National Basketball Association. He's the center on the Sixers. And it is being reported by The Athletic mm. that he is nearing a deal to have an official shoe sponsorship okay. and shoe with Skechers. Huh. Skechers, which has never created basketball shoes. They kind of create those like slip-on shoes or comfy shoes for walking around the house of the neighborhood. <laughs> but there's, <laughs> I'm not, that's not disparaging. Uh-huh. That's just uh-huh. true. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, they're trying to start a basketball dis- mm-hmm. division, and he mm-hmm. is going to be, it looks like, their flagship guy. They're going to make, I guess they call them the Embiid's or something like that, and it'll be a Skechers basketball shoe, which I, I'm not a shoe guy. I'm not a sneaker guy. It struck me as a little bit odd. I guess the question really is: yeah. Can Skechers be cool in that way? Well, I do have Skechers, you and I Skechers. use them and you're cool. for walking around, <laughs> like, kind of like the neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, walking around the office building, you know, on my break. Um, and Skechers just launched a new pickleball shoe, so they're clearly <laughs> trying to obsessed with. Pickleball, I, I know. I keep talking about the pickleball, but they have a new pickleball shoe because uh-huh. it's wider at the bottom, so people can go side to side and yeah. play pickleball. I don't think so, pickleball and basketball have a lot of I'm, cultural overlap. I, follow though. me along. Oh, okay, follow okay, along. Okay. My whole point is they're trying to expand. They're not just for skateboarders and neighborhood walkers anymore. Were they they're ever for skateboarders? In, I don't re- recall that. Didn't they have skateboarders? Sketch- That's like more no. like vans or something. Okay. Like well, that. I'm not a skateboarder. I don't know. But anyway, but now they're pickleball. They're going into basketball. My point is, they're trying to get for serious athletes, man. And Joel and B, he's gonna have to strap Skechers to his back <laughs> if he's gonna take him to the moon. We'll see what, what happens. Okay, that. I just say as a disclaimer, Joel Embiid. One of my favorite Philadelphia yeah, athletes of all sure. time, on court, off court, absolutely love the guy. Probably my favorite Sixer ever. I don't think you can pull this off, man. I, I don't think I don't think you can pull off Skechers as a basketball shoe. I would wear Skechers, and that's the problem. Joel, you know what I mean? You know what? If a year or two from now you buy some high top Skechers <laughs> yeah, and start trying to rub break it ankles, in my face. I'm gonna bring this conversation rub up. We're gonna mark face. this one, y'all. Okay. So we're gonna move on now to our newsmaker. Travel, Avi, has rebounded significantly since the pandemic, but flights are still down at the Philadelphia International Airport, almost 30 percent from 2019. That's more than other large airports. And while the Philadelphia airport ranked first for fastest TSA security lines, it ranked last in overall traveler satisfaction. That's according to a J.D. Power survey. So how can the Philadelphia airport improve the experience of travelers who pass through its terminals? Luckily, we've got the person who can answer that question and others about flying in our region. Philadelphia International Airport CEO Atif Saeed is with us in studio too. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. Atif Saeed, uh, I want to get some numbers first, some data from you. Where are we in terms of traveler volume compared to pre-pandemic? And what's your target date for getting back to pre-pandemic levels? Yeah, so as far as the passengers are concerned, we're about 85% recovered compared to pre-pandemic. 85? 85. Uh, In terms of operations, we are uh, recovered about 70%. And there's a storyline there, but let me get to that in just a second. So the recovery has happened throughout the throughout the nation and around the world differently based upon many different variables. And uh, 
we are a transatlantic hub to uh, to uh, American airline connectivity to Europe. That plays an important role for us and our recovery. Uh, so each airport is situated differently. Yeah. There are airports that are Asian connecting, other are Latin American connecting. So recovery has been different. And then depending on weather and local policies, both nationally and internationally, recovery has been uneven. Uh, the, let me address the, the delta between the recovery in passengers and the recovery in the number of operations. Because one was 85 and one was 70. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, you probably, if you've traveled recently, have experienced planes to be fuller. Uh, they're not just fuller, they're also larger. So there are more seats being provided by the mm-hmm. airlines for the routes that they are. So they're recovering back uh, uh, in much higher volumes than they are in terms of actual operations. Um, I want to very specifically speak to our airport and our recovery uh, for for you folks um, and for those who are listening. So there are a couple of elements that are keeping us at 85%. Um, and they are clearly understood as to what they are and the path forward for them. Uh, the first one uh, is airlines had to make hard decisions during the pandemic. They're mm-hmm. a very high cost uh, business. Mm-hmm. And equipment and personnel are two of the largest uh, uh, expense items that they have to deal with. So they've taken certain steps that are unfortunately now having some uh, unintended consequences. So all the planes that were connecting us to deeper Europe, which we call as secondary or boutique mm-hmm. destinations in Europe, were basically retired okay. uh, in hope that they will be replaced with new equipment. And unfortunately, with the supply chain issues and some other issues, they have not been able to take back specifically uh, American Airlines, not been able to take uh, ownership. So like what of kinds those. of destinations are we talking about? Uh, so there? we are talking like Budapest. We're Budapest. talking, yeah. you know, deeper into Europe, kind okay. of uh, kind of uh, Greece. And so and those so routes on. have not mm-hmm. recovered yet. Those, those routes have okay. not recovered. And obviously, uh, American Airlines flies people from around the nation, gets them aggregated here and then distributes them into right. Europe. So that link is not there. The second part is the regional aircraft. That's another reason why the operations are low. The smaller planes are grounded right now because of pilot shortage. Now, American Airlines has publicly said they've got a game plan uh, to deal with that. Uh, Our extrapolation based upon data is that we will be recovered sometime in calendar year 2025, which happens to be our fiscal year 2026. Okay. Yeah. And I want to ask you a question. First of all, um, congratulations on your new role. And you know that uh, Philadelphia International was named the worst large airport in North America. Um, when it comes to customer satisfaction, you came from Minneapolis, which is ranked number one among mega airports. Um, how do you sort of shift that? Um, yeah. What are some of the best practices you saw in Minneapolis that you think could work to get us out of that worst category? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So as I was actually starting my job, uh, this survey last year you know, uh, came out and we had the same ranking. This is the third year in a row, just so yeah. so you know that we've been ranked lowest in our category. And I just want you to know that uh, folks are not sitting still and you know thinking, not thinking of a challenge. A lot of work that is being done in infrastructure enhancements, technology improvements, and then building a customer-centric culture. With that said, uh, once you read through those rankings, it's quite obvious that we are comparing our, or this particular survey is comparing us with facility, uh, with facilities and airports that are new mm-hmm. as compared mm-hmm. to us. As you know, we have an old airport. Our newest facility is about 20 years old, which is our international uh, terminal. So there's a lot of work that needs to happen to rehab that. We are going through a master plan update that actually will inform investments needed into the future 
to upgrade the facilities to bring them to that level. Now, that does not mean that we don't do everything else that we possibly can to move the needle, but J.D. Power, folks who do this survey, have explicitly said, even uh, in the article that they published, that for us to move the needle, it would require investments, uh, large-scale investments uh, in the terminal, and that's not going to happen over, over time. But you know, we, we will continue to work because our focus is 2026. We are not going to rebuild this airport by 2026, but there is a lot that we can do between now and 2026 to create the best possible experience. This particular survey, I do not know where we will move the needle. But as you mentioned, uh, in addition to the one that you mentioned, uh, we were also ranked, uh, I think, number five in the world for um, on-time arrivals. Mm -hmm. uh, the TSA number was national. but uh, And that is thanks to our partnership with our airlines, and many people come together to be able to make that happen. Uh, but there are components of our, of our um, overall work around customer service that uh, shows up in other surveys and other rankings. And lastly, I just want to make this point for what it's worth. All of the categories that the J.D. Power uh, presented, we had made positive movement in. So right. There was some upward we, movement, yeah. We're just not able to break through that ceiling unless or until we, according to them, Make actually sure invest in infrastructure. I guess like, one of my questions, though, is like, where is the airport falling short, do you think, when it comes to customer satisfaction? Because my understanding was it actually wasn't really about like food and amenities, it was about some other stuff that you wouldn't necessarily think, or I wouldn't have thought, was core to that consumer satisfaction experience. So like, where do you feel like, hey, if we can improve this thing, we can really move the needle for passengers? Yeah, so, you know, we take all kinds of surveys, and J.D. Power happens to be one of them, and it's unfortunate for us to be ranked where we're at. But we take feedback from customers multitude of different ways, and there are multiple initiatives that we're working on that are informed by that particular conversation. So, for example, we're going through an extensive rehab of our restrooms. It's restrooms, a $100 million yeah. Dollar project. Yeah. That's it's a big one. Yeah. very big one. It's a very important one. We've got some support from, mm -hmm. uh, from, from federal funds uh, to be able to support that as well. And we're building them as inclusive as we possibly can, so they're not just restroom upgrades. We've got, uh, uh, you know, adult changing rooms in their lactation rooms in there. We're creating facilities for pet relief areas. We want to make sure this experience for everybody that travels through is the best it possibly mm -hmm. can be. Another area is gate hold areas. People have concerns about not having enough charging stations, maybe even a little bit of facelifting that needs to happen. So we're going through a project where we actually have already made uh, enhancements in certain parts of the airport. We're actually redoing the carpet and the seats yeah. and the ceiling and, and the overall ambiance. Um, our food and beverage program actually even by the Jerry Power was acknowledged as a good one. So there are multitude of things that we're working yeah, absolutely. on. Absolutely. And since we're talking about customer satisfaction, I want to bring in a caller. But if you're just tuning in, Atif Saeed is the new chief executive officer of Philadelphia International Airport. I want to bring in our caller, Marilyn, who wants to talk about wheelchairs at the airport. Sure. Uh, Marilyn, you're on Studio Two. What's your question or comment? My comment is <clears throat> that I think there needs to be a lot of focus on uh, staff um, treatment of people. Uh, infrastructure is great, but managing staff behaviors is really important. And I know post-COVID, post staffing issues are hard, but this has been for decades. Hmm. And I'm a frequent flyer and more recently have had to use wheelchair service. And I, whether it was in London, Greece, Mexico, uh, Dallas, the wheelchairs showed up and the people were great. JFK, uh, they didn't show up yeah, at Philadelphia. Absolutely. Okay. The only airport. And I know it's a third party. Yeah. But when I asked them what happened, they said, nobody tells us. And yeah. it's as simple mm. as if your luggage is being put on a different carousel, 
than what it says yeah. on the visual. It's a it's a customer service issue. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, thank and you, thank Marilyn. you so much, Marilyn, for that. Can you respond? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I completely agree. Uh, one of the initiatives that we're working on is really going to be important for our success as an organization uh, is uh, creating a, we actually have created and it's already in the works, uh, uh, a guest experience council. So I just want to tell you, and, and I think the caller identified that rightfully so, there are about 17,000 badged employees that have access to the airport that provide services through multitude of different uh, avenues. Less than 10,000 of them are city employees. Hmm. The remaining people are businesses from individuals to mom and pop shops to publicly held companies and everything in between. Uh, it's very easy for, I shouldn't say easy, it's straightforward for an organization to have a framework of mission, vision, value, and customer experience, but to bring an entire community together in a unified way to create an experience for them to understand that the passenger does not differentiate between a third party and airport. It's our experience as a community. So we're doing work now that creates a vision and a buy-in from all stakeholders and yeah. accountability around that. Listen, um, it is it, not just us. Uh, the struggle around workforce um, uh, is, is real. Uh, it's hard to recruit and retain people right now. We are doing multitude of things to be able to tackle that. We recognize that uh, that is an element that we need to uh, pay attention to. And I got to ask you, shift gears a bit and ask yeah. you about crime at the airport yeah. because we just lost a Philadelphia police officer, Richard Mendez. Um, two suspects were just arrested yesterday in connection with that. I mean, they've been charged with murder and related crimes. And our news partner, 6ABC, found there had been a surge in crimes, um, you know, at, at the Philadelphia airport. I want you to, where does the airport stand when it comes to crime? What measures are being put in place to make sure people are safe when they come there? Yeah, so let me start by uh, just uh, saying that's a devastating uh, incident. Um, our uh, Philadelphia Police Department Airport Unit is part of our family. Uh, Philadelphia Department of Aviation um, and uh, uh, the Philadelphia Airport Police Unit work together. So we consider uh, Officer Mendez uh, and his family and o Officer Ortiz and his family um, part of our family and, and we're deeply saddened by uh, the loss of uh, Officer Mendez and really grateful for the steps that are being taken to make sure that people who uh, committed the crime are brought to justice. Uh, with that said, um, safety and security is, is paramount at mm. the airport. We work very collaboratively and our police department does an incredible job of making sure every single day that people are traveling through there are safe. Uh, and that will remain uh, the case. In the parking facilities, we do partner with uh, PPA. Uh, they are the operators and we are the owners of those facilities. We have expanded an existing uh, agreement that we have with a, a third-party security company to enhance presence within those uh, parking facilities. That's security uh, going officers. Forward. Security, that yeah. is correct. Mm -hmm. And how about cameras? Uh, so I'll, I'll get to cameras in a second, but I want to give credit to PPA. They've got a lot of employees mm -hmm. that are eyes and ears in the garages, and you know they report things, and they'll continue to do that. They also are enhancing their presence, uh, uh, staff presence within. Uh, the facilities. As far as cameras are concerned, these facilities were built 50 years ago. Cameras were not part of the infrastructure. As part of a project that we've been working on, unfortunately, that initiated before this uh, unfortunate incident, uh, we are going through a rehab, which is introducing a lot of different technology, including cameras, and they were being piloted, and they're still being piloted. Yeah. Mm. So our goal is to continue moving with that and, and get them scaled uh, throughout the facilities. We have a caller that I don't think we can bring in because we just don't have enough time. We have sure. maybe a minute or so left. But the caller wants to talk about public transit to the airport. So sure. I just want to maybe give you 
a question about that in my own words, which is, what can you do to improve public transit to the airport? Obviously, you're not SEPTA, um, but is there something you can do to make sure people have better access to the airport, wherever they're coming from in the region? Yeah, so we work closely with SEPTA. We've got a very strong working relationship with them. This is an ongoing, continuous dialogue. Obviously, things sometimes seem simple to solve in surface and much more complex, especially when it comes to infrastructure like that. We are making enhancements to our stations on airport, actually current projects, uh, that would hopefully allow for more frequent access uh, to the the airport. Hmm. Uh, But there's just a lot of different pieces that need to come together for that to be successful. But I just want you to know that we want to have robust connectivity, especially approaching 2026, when we'll have people from around the world and from many communities who are used to taking trains. Right. Uh, and transit from talking about the World Cup in 2026. World Cup and, and uh, specifically that, but we'll also have people obviously coming from uh, hopefully around the world to celebrate our 250th birthday as a nation. Mm-hmm. Um, before we let you go, uh, just want to ask real quickly about cargo capacity. You're, mm-hmm. You have a lot of projects expanding cargo capacity. Um, what, what percentage of your revenue comes from cargo services versus traveler services, and is that balance changing? Yeah, so I don't have the exact numbers. It's it's a it's a nominal amount compared to you know we're tip, we're predominantly right now passenger uh, airport and we're we're moving towards more cargo. So it, it will have a change, substantial change, in mm. the actual cargo revenue. Not necessarily that it becomes a much bigger part of the revenue. Much more important thing as an airport, we are more than anything else an economic engine for the community, and what these cargo activities do is they help generate jobs and stimulate economy in local economy uh, by providing facilities and services. Uh, we, uh, we are right now estimating if the current path is completed with the exp- expansion that we're doing, 6,000 permanent jobs uh, over close to a billion dollar a year in economic impact. Mm. So to us, those are the numbers that are more important. Interesting. Yeah. That is Atif Saeed, CEO of the Philadelphia International Airport. Really appreciate the time on Studio Two. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. By the way, I want to mention that the AP and other outlets are reporting that actor Burt Young passed away earlier this month at the age of 83. He was known for playing Pauly in the Rocky movies. Coming up, we're talking about the future of retail. Welcome back to Studio Two. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman, Errant Cherry. Do you shop a lot? I actually don't know if you shop a lot. Do you shop a lot? Not as much. I used to love shopping. Um, right. Part We're of it about was in-person shopping. Yeah, way, I yeah. used to love shopping. Part of it was I was spending other people's money. Now I spend mine, so <laughs> uh, not as much. You okay. know. Uh, yeah, I've never been a big shopper, but but no judgment. I think yeah, it's a great yeah. activity. Um, lately, however, a lot of people kind of been complaining, yeah. griping a little bit about the experience of shopping, whether it's at the grocery store for essentials or like boutique shopping. People feel like it just isn't what it used to be. There is a shortage of staff, mm-hmm. all these you know, hard-handed anti-theft measures, and then there's those self-checkout kiosks. I'm rolling my eyes right now because I can't stand them. And it seems like people either love them or like me hate them. Um, but I'm neutral guess, on them. Is that weird? <laughs> I know. But our, our guest, because you're not a big shopper, I guess so, you know. Yeah. But our guest Amanda Mulse says that either way, self-checkout hasn't lived up to the hype. And retailers are now realizing that. Amanda is joining us now to talk about all the changes we are seeing in retail, whether or not shopping really is less pleasant than it used to be, and what's behind all the recent store closures that we are seeing. Welcome, Amanda, to Studio Two. Thank you so much for having me. 
So glad to have you here. And we want to know how you listeners mm-hmm. shop. Do you go to stores? Do you like those self-checkout kiosks that are apparently very polarizing? Um, <laughs> if you work in retail, what changes are you seeing? Email us, studio2 at whyy.org or call 888-477-9499. So Amanda, I want to start by providing simply a lay of the land when it comes to retail stores. What was the shopping experience like when retail stores were most popular and where have we landed? Well, the history of retailers in America is fascinating, I think. Um, it goes back about 150 years. And at that point, you're really hitting the uh, the department store era and its beginnings. And that has been much of the history of retail in America. And these stores were sort of grand. They were mm. um, opportunities to look at all kinds of different things. And they um, they were a lot of fun. They had community events, concerts. They, some of them gave out free turkeys at Thanksgiving. They were sort of um, envisioned by these sort of retail barons as centers of community life. And that idea sort of persisted for quite a while until you get to like around the 80s. During, in 1980, trucking deregulation happened as well as a, a number of other things. And that meant the country started to shift to more of a big box discount retail mm-hmm. um, model, which is where you get the rise of Walmart, of Target, of um, these big, these sort of like giant um, low cost, uh, huge retailers that have like a zillion stores across the country. Um, and the same thing sort of happens in grocery, although that's still more regionalized than you see in big box retail. And a lot of these companies, um, you know, they got very, the, the industry got very, very centralized. Um, they got very, um, low price, which is great mm-hmm. in a lot of ways for customers, but it means that some of those others amenities, um, get eliminated. Mm-hmm. Um, and because you're, you're really just competing on price in a lot of instances instead of competing on experience. So you see this this progression to where we are today where the companies get more and more centralized. Um, There's fewer retailers out there competing. You have the addition of online shopping in the 2000s that has um, you know, pr- uh, created some more price pressures for a lot of retailers, and then also just like scrambled some of their um, scrambled some of their strategies and, and made some of them a little bit in- inefficient at figuring out what customers mm. customers want from them and where. And then you have like a lot of uh, an yeah. entry into the category from private equity, which really drains a lot of money out of the situation. And you get the situation we're in now, where a lot of stores are kind of dismal. Mm. Wow, covered 150 years there. I Amanda. love it. Um, <laughs> this is was, my specialty. I love this fantastic. <laughs> okay, I was not planning to ask this at all, mm-hmm. but I just, just just curious. How did trucking deregulation lead to the rise of big box stores? Yes, I love this topic. This is something that that I don't think enough people understand, but it created basically the um, the the consumer situation we have today. Um, so in the 1980s, you know, trucking was um, pretty expensive. Um, it was a largely unionized industry. Um, there was lots of different carriers, um, and moving a, a great deal of product across the country was pretty expensive. So you had a lot of regional retailers. You had more mom and pop stores because um, scaling these things up to um, to national levels, you just couldn't move that much product um, Mm. at at that large of a scale. Um, When trucking was deregulated, the cost of of freight shipping just plummeted. Mm. Um, It it costs so little to move stuff across the country now, and you can move it in really, really huge quantities. And that created, um, you know, Walmart and Target and and other types of big box retail where um, moving stuff across the country is basically as, um, as, as, 
inexpensive as it possibly can be. Um, wow. So you have uh, economies of scale, basically, where Walmart can um, can buy up so much so much inventory of a particular type of product and price it so low that a smaller retailer can't really compete with it. Um, and then Walmart can do all of that distribution out of its own network logistics network, and you just get um, stores that are sort of like too big to be competed with. Wow. So trucking killed Wanamakers. I did not uh, know that. Okay, Cherry, you got to go fun fact. Now. <laughs> and so, you know, trucking, one of the reasons why we are where we are right now, and you also mentioned e-commerce, big part of reasons why we are right now. I, I, I read somewhere that I think about 20 plus percent of all purchases are made online. Give us some of the other reasons why we're here now where, you know, just yesterday, I had to check out, you know, go to do the checkout, self-checkout at the grocery store at ShopRite. Right, right. Um, part, there's a lot of reasons for, for how all of this happened. Um, one of the big things that's going on, though, I think, is that, and, and this is a, a big reason for the rise of self-checkout and its proliferation, I think, perhaps past its point of usefulness, um, is that something that that costs a lot of money to run mm -hmm. um, a retail store is to pay people to do the things within the store or to simply be in the store in case anybody has a question or wants to buy something um and for a large store that costs a lot of money you need a lot of people to to do all of those tasks to run registers to restock shelves to answer questions mm -hmm. um so and and when retail executives see that on on a you know a profit and loss sheet or on their quarterly results labor is is you know usually their number two cost and it's one of the easiest for them to cut in the short term um so you get this really this push to decrease labor budgets for retailers as much as possible this is really short-sighted thinking it does not create a a long-term good um healthy business that people like going to yeah. but in the short term it, it allows you to say hey we're keeping our expenses under control reducing profits investors like that most of these are public companies um so so that's the incentives that they're working with and the promise of self-checkout is that you get to um do theoretically the same number or more transactions but with a lot fewer people mm. needed to do that. So instead of instead of 10 cashiers for 10 registers, you have one person who is supposed to uh, correct errors on 10 machines that are being used by customers. And that is like a really, you know, a capital investment is comes out of a different budget than labor labor does for for most retailers. And that's just the 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 idea is it pays for itself in the long term. Um, and you get a lot of um, a lot of retailers looking to do this, especially with competition from the internet, because mm -hmm you don't have anybody running registers. You have people packing orders, but uh, yeah. you do that in a centralized warehouse. So again, you're looking for an economy of scale there. And in order to compete with online um, and with a completely different labor structure where people aren't showing up in person to ask questions or to or to need help lifting something, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, so you've got retailers that are still trying to do the function of in-store retail, but with labor budgets that resemble more of like a warehouse labor budget, um, which is just a completely different thing as far as like the uh, cash value of the inventory you can move yeah. in that period of time. And I just want to jump in because we post this question on um, social media and we got a bunch of comments about self-checkout. You could have done a whole show on self-checkout, I mean, by the way. <laughs> Jeff said, I still shop in stores and I will never use self-checkout. The cashiers are there working. They're getting paid um, to do so. Why would I do their job? Wayne says, 
They're not paying me to work there. No self-checkout, hire workers, let them feed their families, spread the wealth. A lot of people feel strongly about self-checkout. Yeah, and you wrote, Amanda, that it's a failed experiment, mm-hmm. which which I which I understood your point because a lot of people don't like it. But then I kind of thought, well, isn't the technology just going to get better and people at some point are just going to get adjusted? Or maybe they never will. Do mm-hmm. you think people's opinions can change on self-checkout as part of the retail experience? I think that what we are probably seeing next is like two different things. The first thing is I think technology probably will get better and self-checkout will become easier and less error prone because one of the big problems with self-checkout right now is that the machines are clunky. They often don't work. They're not very, I mean, they're sophisticated in that they're very expensive and have a lot of technology in them, but like the impact, the payoff of that technology is like often really not there. They're very buggy. Um, And So you end up in a situation where people don't like using them, they get frustrated, um, and they're expected to be used for purposes they don't really serve very well. They, you know, you can't check out a family of four's weekly grocery shop on a self-checkout with like a little little platform that you're supposed to be balancing all of your purchases on. It's just not enough room. It's a bad, it's a bad implementation of the technology. So we've got um, improved technology, I think, is in the, um, is in the offing. Um, Things like RFID tags that make um, checkout uh, a lot easier and a lot more accurate accurate without um, having to do this whole like scanning kiosk thing that the general public is just not very good at. And I think that also retailers are beginning to see that the the amount of money that they've spent on this and the the what they've done to their labor budgets in service of these sort of like short the short term thinking is just not good for the long term health of their businesses. So you see retailers starting to put more employees over in the self checkout area. You see them renovating it to give it a little bit more room to involve more people, more employees again. Um, and I think so. I think that we're sort of rethinking what it is that self-checkout is good for and how it can Mm -hmm. be best implemented because when you have one thing and you don't have a question and you don't have to get your id checked to to buy this particular thing it is great you you run in you run out you know um but there's just like so many more types of transactions than that and you can't they're not one size fit all by the way a funny email from jason uh who says i'm not a big fan (laughs) of self-checkout unless it's at wawa at 7 30 a.m when the line is 20 (laughs) deep jason i'm with you i will run to that self-checkout in a second um and so i i want to sort of switch gears a little bit because um in addition to dealing with self-checkout you know Um, I ran into a retail shop to get some lotion the other day um, and it was locked up. (laughs) So much. So with the Tide Pods, I'm like, and and there was nobody really to help me get it out of the place. Can we talk about uh, anti-theft efforts? What does the reality look like when it comes to, to retail theft and these all these devices now that Avi and I, we all have to deal with. Do they really need all that stuff? Do they really need it? Yeah. I think the answer is usually no. Um, you usually see those types of devices in um, in drugstores and in like the drugstore area of like big box retailers. Um, and usually, especially with drugstores, I sort of question yeah. as to whether or not they really care if they sell any of that stuff in the first place because it makes it harder for people to actually buy it too, yep. not mm-hmm. just uh, for people to steal it. Um, the the sort of internal economics of of a drugstore most of most of the the transactions that the company cares about are coming from the pharmacy itself, not from the grab and go products. Um, that sort of populate most of the floor space. So 
I think that for them, the the idea is that it doesn't really matter if we sell a lot of this stuff or not, because the profit center is all in the prescriptions. So they put that stuff up in order to prevent them from having to hire more workers. And basically what we see, the the self-checkout in, in these like vastly reduced labor budgets, I think can contribute to theft if it's if it is rising. The mm. numbers on that are not good. Um, you You don't see a whole lot of like objective evidence that this exists. And you see some uh, retail executives sort of admitting here and there that maybe they have overblown the problem a little bit. Um, so well, I don't get why would they overblow the problem? Like these people are in the business of selling stuff and getting people to come and to now their I stores. can't get it because it's just up. so weird yeah. to me that if this is indeed just a fantasy, why they would perpetuate it? Is it an excuse what? for their own performance? I don't know. I think partly yes. Um, because what when, when you look at like how a retailer works internally, um, shoplifting and other kinds of theft are a part of what is called shrink, mm. um, which is like your total inventory losses. And that can be from, you know, misscanning things, inventory inventory issues on the back end, all kinds of errors can lead to shrink. Um, retailers are sort of guessing what it is that, um, that resulted in any per- particular product vanishing from their store without a transaction associated with it. So, a lot of times, if you're sloppy, if you um, if your inventory practices are not good as a company, if you're not hiring enough people to actually um, to actually deal with the inventory in your stores, if you're not hiring enough people to to dissuade people from shoplifting, if you're not hiring people to fix those errors at um, at checkout instead of people just getting exasperated and walking out, <laughs> mm-hmm. then you're going to have a higher shrink. Yeah. And um, it's easy to uh, blame that higher shrink on um, shoplifting when actually it's just often a indicator of a poorly run store. Mm. And, and let's, I want to read a couple more comments. Um, Danielle, a lot of people who commented on this said they love, they prefer in-person shopping. They want to see and feel what they're buying. And Danielle mentioned that there's no anti-theft shelves in places like Cherry Hill, King of Prussia, or in Malta, New Jersey. Those are suburban so, locations. Suburban locations, Amanda, less yeah. there. So I want to talk about user experiences because in places like Cherry Hill, King of Prussia, all those There's better, you know, shopping experiences. You did a really interesting article about Bass Pro Shops. Great article. Great article, by the way. And and we only have a couple more minutes, about a minute and a half for you. Just talk about what could retailers be doing to get people to want to go shopping again? The biggest thing about Bass Pro Shop when I was at their their Memphis flagship, which is particularly splendiferous, um, is um, is that it was just full of employees. If you needed anything, you could ask somebody. If you um, if you wanted anything, it had been stocked on the shelf. Like they um, they put so many resources into this store in order to make it a good experience. And often I see. I think what you see in other retailers like malls and things like that that have high-end stores are in high-end areas are doing well retailers mm-hmm. are sort of deciding who it is that they that they actually want to put effort into serving um and then you see in less wealthy areas and in areas with marginalized communities you see them just not putting as much effort in maybe that is you know a decision that says well this is not as profitable of an area for yeah. us because mm. people don't have as much money so we're not going to put as, as many people in the stores and we're just going to lock everything up because again Again, especially in pharmacies, a lot of that profit is going to come from the from the prescription business. Um, so I think that you know you're just seeing sort of like a a um, somewhat cynical decision that mm. like some people get served and some people don't. Fascinating. Um, 
and the Bass Pro Shop experience that yes. you write about sounds I more like I wanna go. Wanamakers or Gimbals or one of these grand old department right. stores. Mm-hmm. And I just want to read a quick email from Glenn who said, just come to Trader Joe's. Come I work at Trader, Trader Joe's. Joe's. We don't have and never will have self-checkout. That's a model where they're investing more in employees and labor. And it does seem to be working. And, and they bag efficiently, <laughs> by the way. Um, but I wish we had more time to talk about mm-hmm. this, Amanda. But um Boy, we could have we could have kept going on this. I topic. know, I love. But I have topic. to thank you and let you go, Amanda Mall, Atlantic staff writer uh, covering consumerism, that retail shopping experience. Amanda, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. And that wraps up our show today. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Joan Isabella is WHYY Audio General Manager. Adam Staniszewski is our engineer for today. More from our show at whyy.org slash studio two. Actually, I think our engineer is Charlie Kyer. Charlie, come on. Give Charlie Charlie. a shout out. You can also download (laughs) us wherever you get your pods from Studio Two in Philly. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I am Avi Wolfman Aaron, a big fan of Charlie Kyer. Thank you for joining us this week. We will see you on Tuesday.